Welcome, everyone, to the Library's Scholar Series. Um, before I introduce our featured, who will have his microphone, his microphone on by that time, um, I want to uh, ask everyone to turn off their phones. And yes, that does also include the Dean of Students. Um, so, so. Um, and uh, I want to also let you know that we do have some book discussions coming up for the big read. Uh, the next one is, what month are we in? Are we in October now? Okay. And are we still before the 15th? Okay. So the next one will be October 15th at Bayless Public Library at 7 p.m. where we'll be talking about... Um, why did I just forget the name of the book? Uh, the book, The Roundhouse by Barbara Ehrenreich. And uh, I'm just nervous because my boss is in the audience. So we'll just, I think I said her name right. Louise Erdrich. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. And we have books available uh, for checkout. So this afternoon's talk is... Um, Dr. Jason Garvon, who will be talking about we only pay attention when something happens. And turns out that Jason, if I may call you Jason. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jason went to Northern Michigan University for not only his bachelor's degree, but his master's degree as well. He has a bachelor's in ecology at Northern a master's degree in biology, oh, that's right, but with a wildlife focus for the bachelor's, and then his PhD from Texas A&M University in wildlife science. And he's been with us here at Lake State for over 15 years. It just seems like yesterday, doesn't it, Jason? Yeah, okay. And one very interesting fact that you may not have known about Jason is that he once spent a summer as a Zamboni driver. So work that into the talk today. All right, please help me welcome Jason Garvon. We're good? Marking his technology. All right. Okay, put this in my pocket. So what you didn't say, Mark, is while I was at Northern, uh, there was this other guy there too in the back corner. Steve and I were there at the same, I think I was there first. And then Steve and then Adam Mosey was actually there just before we left. So we we're all three there at the same time. So we'll see a little picture of Marquette here in a minute. You didn't, you don't want to give me a bunch of. No, I already spoke way too long. Okay. All right, good. So in the spring, Teresa sent me a note that said, hey, Here's this book coming up, this big read, and and I found this line, which was actually in the movie when I reread the email. I always read your email carefully, not just skim it, and then say, yeah, sure. Um, here's a lesson for today. Um, so, so she said there's a line that says we only pay attention when something happens, and, and is there something with wildlife going on that, that you could talk about? So I said, yeah, yeah, great. Um, and so the picture here, actually, talk about we only pay attention when something happens. Oh, move around, Teresa. Nobody's there. Um, my wife took this while we were hiking with our daughters. That's a grizzly. Um, initially, maybe 60 meters away, and then it just kind of wandered away. So, of course, we stood there and took pictures for 10 minutes. Um, we had our bear spray. Uh, this was in Kootenai National Park in British Columbia. So the story with this is we're walking up the hill, my oldest daughter and I, and a woman comes down and said, just so you know, there's a bear around the corner. It's moving away from you. You're okay. And turn to my daughter and say, 90% chance it's a black bear. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so we came over the hill. and It's like, oh, my God, that's not a black bear. Probably need to be a little more alarmed here. So, of course, we called my wife up with the camera to start snapping pictures. Um, 
Well, that made me think about the first time we traveled west, three years prior to that, when our daughters were much younger, we, we hiked a trail in Yellowstone, three little kids, but, you know, we make plenty of noise, plenty of noise with three little kids. So it's a popular trail. We'll just hike up and down. We didn't have bear spray. We didn't know anything about being a bear country. Um, went up. We're by ourselves a lot of the time. Came back down. Went to the Pacific Ocean. We were driving back across, and we heard on the news that just off the trail we had hiked on, a week later, a man was mauled by a female grizzly and, and eaten. And so, so suddenly things start playing in your head, right? You don't pay attention. Everything's great. Holy cow, something just happened. We were probably pretty lucky. Um, now we carry bear spray. All right. Um, so that's why this picture is part of my title. And then, of course, don't necessarily have to be terrified of the grizzlies. Here we, like I said, we stood and took pictures, and everybody that came by stood and took pictures. And then we walked off. And then you realize the brush is just over your head, and it's really thick. And you could, I mean, this bear, I had binoculars, was watching it. It would disappear. Then it would reappear, disappear, and reappear. So how many of these we actually have hiked by? I don't know. Look at that. Okay. So we're going to talk about my struggles with this talk in a minute. But first of all, we only pay attention when things happen. Can anybody think of this, an idea about this? I stole this this morning. <laughs> That's right. Thanks, Jerry. That's what I came up with. This is the coronavirus Earth, um, besides the pandemic. So, so I came up with a few things that I think we can probably all agree on. The pandemic, racial inequality, for my own sake, um, yeah, you kind of know it's there until really this spring. I think it's really been thrust in the public eye a little bit more. Um, really start paying attention and thinking about my own actions um, and how, how we address this. And so simply just saying, yeah, 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 all lives matter. Now, I think we all understand that the deck isn't stacked the same way for everybody. I'm hoping we're getting to that point at least. Um, other things I thought about, okay, the fire's in the West. I think we're starting to see how bad those are, and that goes to climate change, and I'll talk about climate change as we move on. The biggest thing for me, though, has been the self-published reality. What we're realizing is that with social media, how much your, your searches you do, the things are focused in on what you like more. Um, someone once said to me that, you know, it used to be you could read a newspaper and you knew someone had published something that had been through some editors, had been checked. We're in this area where everybody's their own author. Everybody's their own editor. Anybody can publish anything. And so we start seeing some vastly different reality. And so it seems like that's just popped out of nowhere, and yet now we're starting to pay attention to it, I hope. Okay. Those are things for me. So this is where I get to bring up Teresa. So I don't. I don't. This is, nope, I'm up here. I'm up here. This is my story. <laughs> this is how it went. Teresa can rebut later. So she said, can you do this? And I said, of course. I said, yes. I don't even think, did you tell me the book at that point? Yeah, yeah. So she, I'm going to give her credit. She actually did say, yes, here's the book. Louise Erdrich's Roundhouse. No, you didn't say Louise Erdrich. You said Roundhouse. Okay, great. Yeah, I can talk about this. Um, come to find out, I'd read the Roundhouse when it first came out. Um, and this idea of, of giving a talk about something in a theme in the book, right? I'm a biologist. Really read things for literal translation. Pull the information out of it. Chuck it aside and move on, right? So, so I'm actually thanking Teresa for giving me this chance to really kind of let my mind go a little bit start thinking about a book in some non-literal translation and get back to my liberal arts institution roots. So 
Thank you for that. I'll pick on you in a minute. So, so this is kind of an exercise of the mind for me. It's going to be a little bit of free flow, um, a lot of story. I'm going to try to hook on. I'm jumping ahead. Step back to say, oops, there we go. Your mic's loose here. I'll fix it. Um, my introduction to Louise Erdrich, really, 1996. I don't know if Steve took this class or not. Everybody wanted Dr. Melissa Hearn's EM315, Native American Literature in the 20th Century, because it hit three or four gen ed categories. <laughs> so you got, you got a big bang for the buck, right? So you got your upper division humanities, your world cultures, and something else that I can't remember. Um, I was a sophomore when I took this class, which was unheard of. This was a senior only class because they got in there. I had taken uh, technical writing from Dr. Hearn the semester before. Said, this class looks interesting, would you let me in? She saw something in me at that point I didn't see in myself. And said, sure, I think you can handle it. Um, so she let me in this class. For me, arguably hands down the best class I've ever taken at a university. Um, as far as impact, changing my perspective, um, it was pretty wild. Having to actually get into a book and look at things and read past the words, something I had never done. In fact, really, reading books, probably I hadn't done a lot of up to this point. Um, Suddenly we had to read a book every two weeks, chug through, they were good books. We had discussions. Do you know any Native American authors? I met Sherman Alexi, he came in. Um, it was just a fantastic class. So she introduced me, we read tracks, Louise Erdrich's earlier work. Um, you'll see Nanapush in tracks. You see Nanapush in most of Louise Erdrich's stories. Um, comes up in the roundhouse as well. So that was kind of my introduction into this, this whole non-literal translation side of things. And so I have her to thank for this. All right, so some themes I picked up on in the book and some people that, that I think go with these themes. First is a seemingly sudden change, and that goes along with we only pay attention when something happens. The persecution in the name of progress, I think that's, uh, we see that a lot in the book, given that it's about a native uh, on a reservation. I will talk a little bit about that. Resilience comes up in the book. The idea of everyone's problem and no one's problem at the same time, we see this when we start looking at jurisdiction of, of what happens, right? It's not on tribal land. It's not, is it on tribal land, federal land, state land? Who's got jurisdiction? Nobody really knows, so it just kind of goes by the wayside. Um, so I'm going to pick up on that theme. If you've read the book, how many have read the book? Way to go. I'm going to pick on the upper admin here. I didn't see a lot of hands up. Uh, so, reckoning with action. So you know in the book there's a major action that's taken. And then our hero kind of has to reckon with this. So when we think about this in reference to wildlife, there's something going to be coming in into the legislature. I'm guessing we're going to be voting on in the next few years that I'll talk about. And then the idea of non-conforming, and I'm going to hop to the people then. Joe is the main character. One of my favorite characters in this entire book is actually Cappy's dad, Doe LaFournier. Um, it took me a while to realize why I liked him. He just kind of sits under the radar, and then they say he'll be the, the janitor, tribal offices, then he'll be the tribal chairman as they need him. And then he'll just fade back into the woodwork, do his thing, lives with his two boys. They have their own world. He emcees at the powwows. And then when they need him to be chairman again, he hops in again. Right? Um, so Cappy's whole family kind of exists, and they kind of, they're in this juxtaposition where they're, they're adapting really well, kind of moving into the white world. Uh, his brother is going away to college, yet he's still trying to hang on to his native roots and some of their traditions. Um, so I like Cappy's family. And Linda Wishgob is actually my favorite story of the whole book. So if you read Louise Erdrich, there's always a few stories running at the same time. Um, 
Linda Wishkab is a native or a white-born child who's deformed. Her parents don't want her. Her adopted mother is native, who happened to work as a custodian, took care of her, loved her, adopted her, and then in the end we see she actually saves, really saves a hero. Um, so she's actually one of my favorite stories and characters. So we're going to kind of run with these themes. But first, Joe demands we discuss the elephant in the room. So if you've read the book, first half of the book, Joe is going around and around and around demanding somebody actually talk about what actually has happened. And so this is where I pick on Teresa. Um, so after I realized I read the book and I reread the book, I said, oh, my gosh. This story, and in fact, the beginning is around a sexual assault of a Native American woman. And you're asking me, the big white guy, to talk about the book, right? And so I actually struggled with this for quite a while. Um, and Tyler Detloff's not here. I want to thank him. Uh, Tyler and I had a cup of coffee, and I kind of said, okay, Tyler, I've got myself into this. Do I get out of it now? Or can I actually address the fact that I don't know what it is to be um, a minority and have the deck stacked against me? Um, and obviously, I'm not a woman, so I can't see things from that perspective. But, but can I just address that and move on? So he had some good advice there. So I'm going to talk about wildlife and not assault. Um, I mean, no disrespect for the seriousness of that issue in the book, but as Teresa asked me to talk about wildlife with respect to we don't we don't really notice until something happens. That's what I'm going to do, and so I just wanted to lay that out there so that we don't miss the the major theme of this book, or seem like I'm just kind of running over it. Okay, with that, let's talk about wildlife. So. The first theme I picked up on in the name of progress. And so there's no accident that I use a bison here. Um, and the first example, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to talk about some historical things that you all know about. We're going to look at it from the management perspective, from the wildlife perspective. And then we're going to move into some things that you may not know about. Um, and then I'll talk about those with reference to these themes. So the first theme, the name of progress, um, if you've been west to witness the bison herds, it's awesome. Um, if you've been through the national park system, through Yellowstone, I will say the hidden gem of the national park system, Teddy Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota. Um, the same trip, nope, trip before we saw the grizzly. We actually had bison walk through our campground as we were about to have dinner. We had to throw our girls up on top of the car as they just kind of meandered through. So it's awesome to just sit there and be among, you know, that power. So what do we know about the bison? Well, when I learned this in school, so I see Mark squinting. Do I have a laser beam? Oh, it won't show up on the screen anyway. So what I learned in school is that as we needed the railroad to connect in order to move our country forward, the bison would sometimes get in the tracks. And so here's a picture you see. And so this is what I learned. The bison were in the tracks. And so people had to shoot the bison so they didn't wreck the train so that progress could continue, right? And so, oh, that did pixelate really bad. This is actually a stack of bison skulls. And so this is the man up to this high. That's someone else on the top. Historical from the Smithsonian. Um, and then, of course, we have the current bison. But what we know now, and I was in grad school, class at Texas A&M before we had this discussion, really, is why were the bison shot? Well, the bison, the railroad could have run. They were shot to force the natives onto the reservation. Right? But so in the name of progress, we said we have to get rid of the bison, but really we had kind of this alternate um, reality. And so in the book, we hear the story in where we see Nanapush 
in this story is an example of him as a young boy after they've been moved down to the reservations. They're starving. Um, his mother is actually a really good hunter. Um, the rest of the men turn on her. She and Nanapush go off. He saves her. Um, and he ends up, there's an old cow, bison, that lets him catch up to her. And he kills her, and that feeds the people for the entire year or for the rest of the winter. Right? So it's a very powerful thing. What else the bison did is they would make wallows. And so they would trample down the grass. And they would keep the prairie refreshed the entire time. And so we removed them. We brought in, we eliminated the source of maintaining the prairies as part of their ecosystem. The other thing that would have been that, um, adding to that would have been fire as well. Um, and so in the name of progress, we actually took out the bison, and we did a lot more things that we didn't understand at that time right, as far as the prairie health. DDT. Um, so another thing that we don't realize until it's gone. Oh, sorry, I forgot to make my main point here. I'm not going back. My main point was people thought there were tons and tons of bison, right? And why I mentioned Teddy Roosevelt National Park. If you go to there, you can see a cabin that Teddy Roosevelt stayed in. He initially went west as a young man because he wanted to shoot a bison because that's what Teddy Roosevelt was a big hunter, right? Um, and the story is he got out west and found out there really were no bison. And so he chose not to go try to shoot a bison. And that kind of led him down the road of being the major conservationist and setting up um, our parks and so on. Okay, so DDT is another good example of something that we really don't pay attention to until suddenly something happens. And I wasn't actually around, obviously, when we were still spraying DDT. Some of you may have been. But there's commercials say DDT is good for me. There's a little cartoon with the kids. It's like, oh, okay. Um, but we sprayed DDT in the name of progress to keep mosquitoes, keep insects under control um, so people could enjoy the public areas. You see these ladies actually being sprayed by the DDT. There's all sorts of pictures of kids running out, playing in the spray as it comes down the road. Um, but what happened? As things progressed, we know that DDT um, went up the food chain, caused eggshell thinning is a big thing it caused, um, as birds ingested prey who had been sprayed with the DDT, and it worked its way up. And so that caused a decline in a number of species, lots and lots of bird species, which eventually Rachel Carson published her book Silent Spring, which was largely poo-pooed initially, um, partly because she was a woman author, I'm guessing. Um, but eventually people woke up to the fact that, oh, hey, there really are no birds here, right? And so what birds were really affected? Eagles, falcons, osprey, things around here that we treasure. Cormorants, we're going to talk about cormorants. Um, I actually like cormorants. Um, so here's another, so DDT for me is another example of in the wildlife world. We're not really paying attention. We're going along. And these things are slowly happening, and so suddenly it's like, whoa, oh, where did all these things go? We used to see a lot of these. Luckily, in my lifetime, it's actually been the opposite, where we didn't see things. If we go into the prey pothole, this is my talk, so we're going to talk about ducks, just so you all know that we're going to talk about water birds here. Um, so wasted lands. So here we have on the left the prairie pothole region. This is what it should look like. Um, interspersed pockets of water, um, lots of tall grass. Uh, and the tall grass prairies, um, yeah, the grass would be over my head. But what we saw is that was wasted land because one thing the prairies have is a really, really thick A horizon or, or deep organic material that's really, really good for farming as well. Problem is there are all these pesky little lakes also a really good habitat for ducks to breed. And so what they did is use these clay tiles and they drain, drain the swamp, right? Try to find a good image typing in drain the swamp today. 
It's nothing but political ads. <laughs> okay, fine. We'll go to the historical stuff here. Um, but this was the original draining the swamp, right? And so by channelizing this, it made the drier and it allowed farming to occur. Right? And so we took wasted land and we turned it produ into productivity. Um, coincidentally, we learned the Prairie Regions is the breadbasket of America. In my world, it's the duck factory of America. So we have these two kind of competing things going on here. Um, and so, of course, we have to have the requisite blue wing teal there as well. The other thing is we just didn't pay attention until things were gone because there were so many and so numerous. Having grown up in Traverse City, this is actually apparently a rendering from Benzie County. Um, the old Mission Peninsula, there's lots of stories along the old Mission Peninsula uh, where the pigeons were, passenger pigeons were so thick they could hit them out of the air with a two by four. Um, it's estimated that some of the flocks were two miles wide and 40 miles long. And they would darken the sky as they migrated out across. So we're talking about billions of birds at once. They were considered so numerous, nobody thought we, they could actually even make a dent in their populations. And really in about two and a half decades, they went from billions to extinct. Um, and again, people had noticed because they were so thick, one of the issues with the passenger pigeon is they're a colonial nesting species. So they need two things that were stacked against them at this time. They needed old, dead trees to nest, to roost in in the south. Um, and they would roost in really big flocks. And so they need a really, really, really big flock um, in order to feel secure. So as people shot these and as their numbers dwindled, it turned out there weren't these really big flocks. And they think that a lot of them, maybe a few thousand at a time, would just fly around the south looking for the rest of the flock. And in turn, using up their reserves they should have been using, they didn't have all of the dead trees because we'd, quote, drained the swamp and got rid of this useless land. Um, and so that led to the passenger pigeon extinction, which was really quick. So people would actually ride rail cars up to the old Mission Peninsula, the Traverse City area, uh, to shoot passenger pigeons. They would send millions of birds down to the markets in Chicago. Um, and again, in just a few decades, completely decimated the population. So one of these things that, and that was Mark. All right. So resilience. So I like, I like uh, Cappy's family in Doe because they show this kind of resilience, right? To kind of roll with things, find a little niche here, find a little niche there, um, and keep doing well. Now, before I talk about the coyote, I should note that, yes, I realize the coyote is the trickster in most indigenous legend, and I'm not trying to put the trickster on that, that family probably goes to its adaptability. So we've so far talked about things that, that pretty much got nearly wiped out because we weren't really paying attention. Maybe we were. Now we're looking at things that pretty much got wiped out, but then can adapt to the new environment so well. So white-tailed deer um, is actually part of the first hunting regulations passed in the in the New World, uh, post-European settlement, where in the, in the East, they'd nearly extirpated the white-tailed deer, and so they initiated seasons um, as late as late 1700s even, um, limiting the take of does um, and in order to try to save the white-tailed deer, which they were using for food, and realized they were going away. Now, after this, we know that they're in huge numbers, right? In Michigan, when we came through and we logged the UP, moose need this nice old growth habitat. Deer like the nice, freshly cut, early successional habitat. So what we did is we removed the moose habitat, which let the deer come in and thrive, right? Um, a lot of the country did this. White-tailed deer now, this is pretty common. 
Where do deer, deer thrive the most right now? In the suburbs, right? Yeah, they're a horrible problem. They'll eat the siding right off the house when they're starving. They run into cars, or cars run into them. I guess that's arguable which way that one goes. Um, the insurance industries, I mean, this is high on their list, right? Deer are so numerous, they cause these massive damages. But they're adaptable. And what they did is they were pressured, their numbers dwindled, but they've learned how to live around people. The coyote. This is actually a picture of a coyote in Central Park. That's on purpose. Um, what do we know about the coyote? The coyote was, was, was extirpated out of our area. Um, and if you've been in the West, you know that our coyotes here are bigger. So I can say to the Texans, our coyotes are bigger. Um, why is that? What's my wildlife people should know this. What's that? Colder winters, they've got to be bigger, right? So we've got Bergman's rule working here. But also, because they were extirpated out of the Midwest in the east, those western coyotes moved up north, I believe hybridized with the wolves, and then came back down. So we kind of have a hybrid, right? We have 50, 60 pound coyote. That's huge. But what they do is they, they're very good about finding these little niches and filling a little role. So they can be top predator for a little while, then they can move back. They can let the wolf be the top predator and they can just take care of smaller animals. Um, I was in Texas, they always talked about they'd go in and hit the watermelon patches every so often. I mean, coyotes are just so adaptable and they can move around. And then people are incredibly shocked when suddenly they show up in Toronto and then they showed up in New York City. Um, They'll run on railroad tracks. They'll eat dog food that's left out. Um, they're just an incredibly adaptable and resilient animal. Um, and so now we have to figure out what we're going to do with the coyote, right? People in New York City freaked out about this. For us, yeah, I see a coyote. I'm not worried. But this has all happened in the last 30 years, right, where the coyotes have really come back. I remember hunting at... Early on when I could deer hunt at my grandparents' farm and saying I saw a coyote, no one would believe me because no one had seen a coyote in that area of Macosta County in forever. Now my great uncle said he saw a coyote the next day. They're like, oh, yeah, you must have seen a coyote. Okay. It's okay. I'm the young guy. I get it. Um, this one pixelated too, but as we've changed landscape, so remember the original tall grass prairies, six-foot tall grass, Riders had to carry a stick to put in the ground to tie their horse to because there were no trees. Right? Geese will only go into areas in the winter that they can see over. They won't go into grass that's taller than their head because obviously if you're a goose, that's a pretty easy way to get picked off by a predator. So there's stories when I was in Texas about being in the Gulf Coast after to agriculture where people are really excited. You know, I saw 14 dark geese. I mean, seeing a Canada goose there was just such a treat. Now that we've taken the prairies and we've converted them into farmland, which I'm not arguing we don't need because I like to eat too, um, we've created tons and tons of habitat to the point where the snow geese have done so well in the winter they're now completely degrading their breeding habitat in the tundra, and they're displacing lots of other species. Canada geese, I'm pretty sure I don't have to say much about those. They've done pretty well. They're really good about living in urban environments. They like the golf course. It's nice green grass, right? You might as well put a neon sign that says, come on in. Um, it's good ours is next to Clyde's. kind of gets both spots at once. Yeah, so, so in this case, we see the landscape change, and then you've got some individuals that are really able to take advantage of it and exploit that. But again, we didn't really think about it. It was cool to see geese, right? So few, so few, and all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, we've got to do something about this. Everywhere. Okay, so this is the 
Every, every talk's got to have a little contentious part here. Um, I'm going to have to play both sides of the, of the coin here. So reckoning after action. So the Endangered Species Act, um, wonderful piece of legislation that protects those species whose numbers go way down. And thankfully for me and any student who works for me in the summer, um, the Endangered Species Act helps us take care of things like piping plovers. There's only 70-some breeding pairs in the Great Lakes population. Um, the Endangered Species Act, uh, part of the management plan here when you list something is you have to have a population goal that you're trying to get to so it can be delisted. So the whole point of listing a species is to be able to delist it. Right? That's successful management. Um, and that's been really successful for things like the peregrine falcon. Again, something that's adapted to the urban environment. What do we have in the cities all year round? Pigeons actually breed year round in a lot of the cities. So there's lots and lots of pigeons. Peregrine falcons are bird specialists. So one of brilliant management schemes was to start putting peregrine falcon nesting boxes on skyscrapers. Lo and behold, they do wonderful. And they've been delisted in some states um, because they've thrived so well in this urban environment. So this is a success story, right? We've, we've made it to delist uh, the peregrine falcon. This is a much more contentious issue. See it from the West End, home of shoot, shovel, and shut up, um, as far as dealing with wolves. I think that's fair to say. I've definitely read it a lot when I was in Antonagon. Um, so here's the issue. We listed the gray wolf as endangered. My undergrad advisor was in on the early release of wolves in Michigan in the 1970s. Part of his class, part of his lecture that I remember, um, was talking about why it failed. And so they released four wolves in the summer, radio collars. They had five wolves dead by deer season. One came in from Wisconsin. Um, so what it ended up being is they weren't asking the right people. So kind of a side note here. So the people they asked said, yeah, we support the wolf. But the people who were actually out in the woods weren't reading those same periodicals. And so they were saying, no, we don't want the wolf. Um, anyways, we reintroduced. And wolves came over from Wisconsin, from Minnesota, into Wisconsin, into the UP. Um, our management goal here upon listing was 200 animals for sustained for five years. Everybody know what the wolf population was in 2020 and for the last decade? Minimum population of 695. We're over triple our management goal. That is a success. But what's going to happen? We took action. We listed this, right? In the book, there's an action taken. And then you have to reckon with that action. So we've, we've listed the wolf. We've done wonderful management. The wolf is way over social carrying capacity. So we have two things. We learn about carrying capacity, the number of animals the environment can hold. Social carrying capacity, the number of animals the population will withstand or tolerate the human population. Our social carrying capacity is lower than our ecological carrying capacity um, because people get really angry when their cattle get taken by wolves or their dogs get taken by wolves. Um, or lots and lots of deer get taken by wolves and they feel that they're not available for them, right? So our social carrying capacity has been exceeded for a while and now we're actually bumped up against that ecological carrying capacity uh, for the wolf population. Now, so in the management scheme, once they get delisted, management is turned over to the state. The state then, Natural Resource Commission decided um, to have a wolf season in 2013. This was an experimental season. 43 animals um, were, were set in three management units. 
Um, I think 1,200 licenses were sold. I gotta say, I felt that it was gonna be exceeded day one. We never even made it to 43. Um, and, and as one of my colleagues said, everybody think comes up from downstate with a rifle and thinks there's a wolf hiding behind every tree in the UP. Um, and that's just not the case. I mean, I, I've seen one wolf in my entire life up here. Um, so, so we have this issue. We've done good management. We've taken our action. Management's to the state. The state's saying we're over social carrying capacity. Now we're probably bumping up against ecological carrying capacity. There's a demand for a season. We have a season. And then lawsuits come filing in. We can't shoot wolves. And so this is an issue I'm guessing we're gonna see on the ballot in the next couple of years. Um, and so we've got to figure out how to deal with this. I've got my own thoughts, but I'll move on from this. Um, but rather contentious issue. So we actually did pass the Scientific uh, Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act, which says we should be following the science. Um, I wasn't going to go here, but I might as well say it now. Too far down this road. Um, you're you're going to ask anyways, Jerry. So, so I find it ironic, right? Both sides. If we get into the political world, we can argue both sides, right? Saying this side doesn't like it when the science doesn't agree with them, and they won't listen to the science. Well, then this side, another issue: science doesn't agree with them, right? Science doesn't have a political agenda. Science just has data management. All right, the other issue, we said in the book, crime takes place in an area what's, that's debated. Is it under tribal? Is it under federal? Is it under state? Who is it? And nobody can figure out what to do. So we kind of end up with this everyone's problem and no one's problem all at the same time. We have this going on currently, don't we? We have climate change, right? Um, this idea of shifting baselines, and then we're gonna talk about bird distributions again, because it's my talk, so we get to talk about birds. Um, so shifting baselines, anybody know what shifting baseline is? So it's the idea that if we took, looked at 10-year increments in the most basic example, probably really we're looking at 50-year increments, you would be appalled. You would say, man, that's such a huge change. We, why didn't anybody do anything? But when it happens slowly, you get used to things and you accept things that you wouldn't accept if they happened in a big jump, right? That's the idea of a shifting baseline. So temperature-wise, right? We get used to a little warmer winter and a little warmer winter and a little warmer winter as we go on. And suddenly we look back at the data and say, wow, we're, we're a few degrees Celsius warmer than we were. You know, this is, this is gonna have some really big impacts. Um, so with that, We've all seen these projections. End of the year 2100, going up. Okay, what does that really mean? Pilfered this, obviously somebody cared about what was going on out in the West. I'm more caring about what's going on in the Great Lakes. So in 1950s then we see average spring temperature, we were below zero Celsius. Does anybody disagree with that here? <laughs> average spring is below zero Celsius, yeah, maybe not. Um, Projection for the 2090s, where are we at? We're in like the four to five degree range Celsius. All right, so that's four to five degrees Celsius. Okay, great. Now you can look at this in two ways. You can look at this as the economic models which say, oh look, we're the UP. 2090, we're the new Southern California. Our property values are worth a ton. Okay. But let's focus on the wildlife side of things. So what does that mean? Well, the very symbol of the North Woods, of this kind of tranquility, is the loon, right? Guess what? Loons aren't going to be here, right? All the projections are the loon breeding grounds are moving further and further north. So 
So by 2090, we may be the wintering grounds, or they may just skip over us and winter further south. The other bird there, the rough grouse, same thing. Moving further north, we're not going to see them, right? And we're not going to know it until it happens. Nobody's going to take notice until they say, man, we used to see loons all the time here, and suddenly I haven't seen a loon in however many years. Right? That's kind of, kind of what's on the forecast currently. The other is the mallard kiss of death in any presentation is to put a link in it, but I did it anyways. I can see my mouse here. Is that going to work? Nope. Because I have some crazy Mac setting that's not going to run. Okay. I know, Mark's real laughing now. Um, basically, the mallard's going to move further and further north, right? They already breed a little further north than us. Um, they're going to keep going. There's a mallard on the left, American black duck on the right. We're at a point now where we're already concerned about black ducks going extinct due to hybridization. So it turns out this looks like the female mallard, right? But you notice there's no white in the speculum here. So it shows us it's a black duck, and it's a little darker. Anis platyrhynchus, Anis rubrips. Um, but it turns out that female black ducks love that sexy green head. And so if mallards aren't migrating far enough south during the winter, the black ducks still migrate very far south, and they breed on beaver ponds and more. And the thing is where mallards will breed anywhere. If the mallards don't go far enough south, then they readily hybridize with the black ducks. And so we're at a point where we're at risk of losing an entire species due to hybridization. And I hybridize them out. Uh -oh. Broke Mark's clicker here. No, maybe I just froze up here. Oh, there we go. Get back on it. Okay, the last part then is this. Oops, wow, running long. All right, I'll wrap it up. Is the idea of a weed, right? And I said Linda Wishkov is my favorite sub-story within the entire book. So it's this deformed individual that is that doesn't conform to the rest of what is normal, right? Your parents adopt her and love her, and she ends up being the hero. So I love doing this with my freshmen when we go out in the field the first time out towards the lake or woods or the old trailer park. Um, we'll point to plants. I'll say, what is that? Well, that's a weed. Well, what is a weed? It's a 100% subjective term, right? Um, but we're trained to think that dandelions are inherently bad because they're a yellow flower in this nice green lawn. Going back to this, we have the swampy land, and we have the potholes, right? Unproductive, unwanted, yet they hold immense value for our wildlife, for recharging, for handling floods. All these things they serve, yet we kind of got rid of them in the past because they weren't the pretty productive lands that, that we really wanted. The beaver pond, the same thing, the beaver meadow, how dare these beavers block up our gorgeous trout stream, this pristine water and all the trout, and then they cause sedimentation and silting and flooding, and the trees die back. But what they're doing is creating a beaver meadow. They're recharging the nutrients of that area. And eventually this beaver dam will blow out and the stream will go back to normal. Um, but then you'll have this really rich soil, and that's going to allow lots of new species to come in and thrive. Look at the last slide from my major advisor. He always talked about hearing someone ask him. We had lots of discussions in his class about the inherent value of wildlife and how people view things. Are cormorants good for anything? Jerry's is laughing. So, um, again, they were really hit by DDT. Their numbers really dwindled. Uh, 
You got involved, and it came back. On the left is a cormorant nesting island, and that's what they do to the islands. Cormorants nest in the trees. They nest on the ground. Their feces is full of uric acid, which kills all the trees back. And what that does is it takes that island back to bare ground, and there's lots of species that need to nest on that bare ground island without vegetation. So really important in the cycling of other species um, being able to breed in these areas. Uh, the cormorant, obviously, here, public enemy number one. Um, People feel they've caused the decline of the fishery. Uh, I won't go down that road. Um, I think there's a lot of things that cause the decline of the fishery, probably overfishing being one of them. Um, but we were controlling cormorants on islands until um, that was halted. And again, we may see that, we'll see this if you're watching the legislation. This is coming up as well. Uh, cormorant control. They are booming, they are doing wonderful. Um, and so there probably is okay that we do some cormorant control. Uh, it turns out that the people who are responsible for bringing the cormorant back, their job was to bring them back from near extinction, um, noticed a loophole with the cormorant control that they hadn't filled out the correct paperwork, and so it all got halted. Uh, that's why we saw cormorant control getting halted for a while. Um, but we'll see where that goes in the future. But again, something that's kind of seen as ugly and unwanted, yet it serves a really important purpose for those birds that need the colonial nesting water birds that need these islands that are isolated away from predators and bare of vegetation. All right. And with that, um, nice picture just outside of Wawa of our beloved Lake Superior, and one should always end a talk with a sunset, so... That's all I have. I guess I can take questions, Mark. <laughs>